Looking for a break from the never-ending news cycle? Searching for fresh, new content that makes you stop and say, that's how they did that? Then look no further than Teamistry, the new original podcast from Atlassian. Hosted by filmmaker and documentarian Gabriella Cowperthwaite, Teamistry looks past the front-page headlines and into the untold stories of teams behind some of history's most groundbreaking moments. Download Teamistry for free at Atlassian.com slash Teamistry or wherever you listen to podcasts. Interested in healthcare? Well, here's a programme you might not want to miss. Hosted by longtime healthcare reporter Dan Gorenstein, Tradeoffs takes a close look at the costly, complicated and counterintuitive world of the US healthcare system and the policies that govern it. Tradeoffs digs into the weeds with experts who understand the data driving the policy trends while telling compelling stories of those impacted by those policies. In the words of the Tradeoffs team, there are no easy solutions for a troubled healthcare system, just Tradeoffs. You can find Tradeoffs wherever you listen to your podcasts. It's science, but not as you know it. The Naked Scientists. Hello and welcome to this week's Naked Scientists with Victoria Gill. Hi, Victoria. Also with Dave Ansell. Hi there. And with me, Chris Smith. Now, this week we're going to be getting our teeth into how scientists are analysing carnivorous plants to try and find a new source of antibiotics. We've also got news of a new underwater glider for exploring the ocean depths. And we'll be finding out how scientists have discovered the inner workings of a hunger hormone. So there's hope in future for an anti-appetite pill. That's all on the way, Victoria. Thanks, Chris. This week it's also our science question and answer show, so we'll be tackling your science questions, plus getting to grips with this simply shocking question. Hi, this is Robin. I'm calling from California in the USA. Uh, I had a question about electric eels. I was wondering how do they themselves do not get hurt by the electric shocks that they use to communicate or stun prey? And since they're in water, how far does the current carry? So how do electric eels avoid self-electrocution? Keep listening to find out the answers on the way. And in this week's Kitchen Science, I'll be showing you how to tell the difference between a can of diet and full sugar fizzy drink, even if you can't read what it says on the can. To have a go, grab a can of normal sugary drink and a can of diet and a sink full of water. Or a bucket, presumably, as well, Dave. <laughs> Indeed. Thank you, Dave. So if you've got a question for us, it is our Science Q&A show, then we want your questions in now, and the wackier the better. Chris at thenakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientist podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.net. Well, let's kick off, as we always do, with a look at what's been breaking science news headlines this week. And this one's really got me intrigued because I used to have a carnivorous plant when I was little, Victoria. So how are scientists analysing them for antibiotics? This comes out of uh, a group in Japan who have analysed um, the carnivorous plant, which is known commonly as the pitcher plant. You might be familiar with it. It uh, has these beautiful bottle-shaped leaves. Um, its Latin name is Nepenthes alata, um, but we call it the pitcher plant because it contains this gooey substance at the bottom of its uh, of its leaf bottles and what this substance does is it, it smells very very sweet so it attracts insects to the edge of this bottle and then they're overcome by the fumes and they fall in and the plant um, dissolves the insect and eats it up and uses its nutrients to grow. So and where does the antibiotics come in then? Well this is the interesting thing um, these these scientists have now analysed uh, exactly what is in this bottle of, of protein goo and it's just a mixture of proteins but they've uh, separated them all out and they 
they've identified them and they have an exact recipe for what's in this picture. So this is plant digestive juices, yeah. if you like. Yeah, exactly. So there are, there are enzymes in there that digest the insect, but also there are antibiotics, antibacterials, because the plant wants to suppress any, any, anti, any bacterial growth while the uh, insect is, is dissolving and rotting away um, so that it can use as much of the nutrients from its victim as, as so possible. So the bacteria don't steal the plant's lunch effectively. Exactly. Because otherwise yeah. if the bacteria were growing, they'd be using the nutrients that yes. the plant could use. So the plant wants to suppress those so it can get as much from its, its lunch as possible. It's ingenious. Do these antibiotics bear any resemblance to the ones we already use in hospital or is this an entirely novel class? These are, No, they're not novel compounds. These are, the, the reason they know exactly what's in this recipe is because they're able to match up what they found with a, a public database. Um, so, But it's a new an interesting source of uh, natural compounds that have antibacterial properties. I wonder if plants suffer from superbug infections as well. <laughs> now, it's often been said that we've seen more of the surface of Mars than we have of our own planet. This is because two-thirds of our planet is covered with ocean, which, although you can see through a few metres of it, by the time you get to 1,000 metres, it's essentially opaque. So you, so you can send probes down to visit the bottom and have a look and see what's going on. That generally requires a huge, expensive ship on the surface to power the probe and to get it to where you want to and be able to just support it in general. Now, various groups have come up with ways of moving autonomous robots around the oceans powered by the water itself. If you, you, know, you may have throw, played with a paper aeroplane. If you throw it, you get up to the top of something high, you throw it, and it gently glides down. So it's using its potential energy to turn into um, movement energy, movement yeah, kinetic energy, and it will move as it glides along. So does the same trick work underwater then? It works exactly the same trick. What you've got to do is make a submarine which is slightly heavier than water, and it will gent- and give it some wings, and you can get it to glide down gently. You can only get it to glide about five times further than it falls. So if you sink into a deep ocean, you you can sink four kilometres and you can glide about 20 kilometres on that. So you could then go down, it wouldn't cost you anything to get this thing down there, but how are you going to get it back up again? Because that could be a problem. Yeah, because if you've got a beautiful glider stuck on the bottom of the ocean, it's not <laughs> a lot of use. Anyway. So what you do then is you just make it slightly less dense than water, you pump some oil or some water out from inside the submarine, you make it float, and then it can actually glide upwards, because now it's trying to float, so you can glide upwards up to the surface again. So people have been doing that for a while, but the problem is you need something to pump the, wa- pump the water out of it and make it float, which takes quite a lot of energy. Now, a company called um, Web Research has come up with a beautiful way of doing this. What you do is you use the different in temperature between the surface of the water and the deep ocean to get you that energy because the surface of the, the ocean especially in tropical areas maybe 20 degree, 20 30 degrees centigrade but the deep ocean is down at two or three so you pick a wax which will expand as it gets hotter and so as the thing comes up it heats up the wax expands and you use that to compress gas so then once it gets down to the bottom of the ocean again you can use that compressed gas to push the oil out make the thing bigger and float again it's like the submarine equivalent of a toyota prius really isn't it it's sort of a hybrid car but for underwater use. It's even better using entirely renewable energy because it's just using the heat from the sun, essentially. Um, and they've just got a prototype of this working. They've had it driving around the Virgin Islands Basin for about 1,400 kilometres with no one having anything to oh, do so with it. So you can go a long way with this, and so that, that means you can potentially survey big reaches of the ocean yeah, I mean, semi-autonomously. They reckon that this thing ought to do 40,000 kilometres before it needs to get checked out and fixed and all the things. It does about a mile an hour, but you can, if you take it long enough over it, and um, with a big enough fleet of them, because they're, they're not costing anything to run once they're launched. You can no. then survey big amounts of ocean. That's the idea. And every time it comes up to the surface, you can then phone home using satellite phones. Just uplink the data. Uplink the data, and there you are. 
Well, back on dry land, what about this for an interesting thing? It's um, an interesting hormone which has been discovered in the last few years. It's called ghrelin, and it's a hormone which is produced by the lining of the stomach, and it's an appetite-stimulating hormone. So if you inject this into people, they say they feel more hungry and they will eat more. And if you inject it into animals for a long period of time, they gain weight and they become obese. So this suggests to researchers, if we could find a way to stop the action of ghrelin, then we could help people to lose weight if they need to, for, exa- for, for example, if we want to have an anti-obesity pill or something. Now, the problem is that ghrelin in the body isn't active just as a hormone. It has to be chemically modified before it switches on. And the the search to try to find out what activates it has been really challenging, and researchers have struggled to do this for a long time. But now there's a guy called Mike Brown, and he works at the University of Texas Southwestern, and they've tracked it down, and they had some help from a fruit fly to do that. Uh, It turns out that ghrelin, when it's activated, has this chain of carbon atoms, eight carbon atoms long, stuck onto the molecule, and this turns it from inactive to an active state. So luckily, someone had done some research on fruit flies a few years ago, And some fruit flies have other chemicals a bit like ghrelin, which are also modified by adding little tails of carbon atoms onto them. And what they found when they analysed these genes from fruit flies was that the genes in the fruit flies all have this signature sequence, a special sequence written into the gene that they all carry. So this group of researchers thought, well, I wonder if the same trick works in mice for this hormone. So they went to the mouse DNA genome and screened through looking for all the hormones that had this characteristic signature sequence written into the genome. And they found 11 genes that have that. And one of them actually is the hormone that activates ghrelin. They put the gene they copied into a cell and found that when they added some ghrelin to these cells, they could turn it into active ghrelin. And so now they know the structure. It's very interesting. It adds this chain of eight carbon atoms. It's the only hormone in the body that has an activating chain of eight carbon atoms. So they think because it's the only one in the body, then it'll be very easy to make a very specific drug with very few side effects to block that effect. And therefore, we could have an anti-obesity pill before we know it. Why is the stomach producing it in the first place? Is that when it's been empty for a while? That's right. When you have um, an empty stomach and it wants to say, look, I'm hungry, it stimulates the brain's hypothalamus, which is where your appetite derives from, and says, look, I've got an empty stomach, I want to take on board fuel. And then when the stomach stretches, it turns off the supply and your appetite goes down. And that's why we think that people who get used to having their stomach very stretched uh, can accommodate more food because that whole system resets itself. But with the, with this, you could just take a tablet, abolish the ability to activate your ghrelin, and you wouldn't feel so hungry. Cool. Victoria. Yeah, that's uh, that's amazing. I've got actually another piece of uh, medicinal chemistry that's sort of mimicking something that happens in the body. Um, scientists at the University of Southampton have developed a polymer um, that could be used to replace bone grafts. Um, now, it's a, it's a spongy, porous polymer that contains, it's seeded with bone marrow cells and also contains um, growth factors that help the healing process. And the tricky thing about making it is that in order to make your porous sponge-like polymer, you basically need to make your polymer fizz up and, and bubble. And to do this, you need high... Make it like coral, like, like the actual bone itself. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so that it'll, it'll leak all of the, the good stuff that'll help your bones heal. And um, in order to do this, you need quite high reaction temperatures and and quite toxic solvents, or at least you have up until now. Um, But these scientists have used a clever bit of chemistry um, using supercritical carbon dioxide, which basically means carbon dioxide between its gas and liquid phase. Now, if it's 
mixed with the polymer. The polymer is already is seeded with cells and with its growth factors, with these very delicate proteins that you Which don't Which is why want. you don't want these nasty solvents, exactly. because it would kill the cells. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you don't want to damage any of these chemicals or damage the cells. Um, so you, you mix your polymer with your, your cells and, um, and your chemicals, and then you subject it to treatment with this carbon dioxide um, under pressure. It's a liquid and mixes with the polymer. And then as you release the pressure, it, it bubbles up uh, and forms this porous, spongy-like sort of froths material. up like taking the can... The tin off a kind of fizzy drink, for yeah, example. Yeah, exactly. But it, but it makes the bone graft spongy. Yes, yeah. So they've now got a, a, a porous, a usable material and they've actually tested it in mice and shown that it can help heal. Um, so the idea of how this would be used is that you would have uh, the bone graft, you'd have an injured bit of bone, you put in this prosthesis, this lump of material which is enriched with factors that make bone grow. Yeah. Uh, this would act as a scaffold to help the normal bone grow back across the, the damaged area. Would yeah. it be, being eroded, would it be eaten away in yeah, the process? Yeah, it's, it's made of a, a biodegradable, fully biodegradable and biocompatible so it doesn't harm your body at all um, polymer. So yes, and it could actually replace bone grafts, they're, they're thinking, and bone grafting is, is quite a, a nasty and invasive process, so it's quite exciting. So in their laboratory, when they want to get people moving, they say break a leg. Now also in the news this week, scientists have been looking into the genetics of prostate cancer, and that's actually the most common cancer that us guys suffer from. And the Naked Scientist's own Kat Arney actually works off-air at Cancer Research UK, and so we asked her to let us know what this paper that's been published in the journal uh, Nature Genetics is all about. Today sees the publication of a big new discovery by Cancer Research UK-funded scientists at the Institute of Cancer Research. Using genome scanning technology, the researchers have tracked down seven regions of DNA that harbour potentially important genes involved in prostate cancer. Now, this is significant because we know relatively little about the genes and molecules involved in this disease, which has meant that research into prostate cancer hasn't progressed as fast as it has with other types of cancer, such as breast cancer. The research was led by Dr Ros Eels and here she explains how the team carried out their groundbreaking work. Now what the study uh, did was that uh, we analysed DNA, genetic material, from blood samples from over 10,000 men and we compared genetic variants in men who had prostate cancer with a control group and uh, in collaboration with the PROTECH study, men who were in that study gave blood samples and we used their samples as controls. And what we did was we ran genetic experiments and they looked for genetic variations, changes in the basis of the DNA code, looking to see if the men with prostate cancer had a different overall profile from the men who had a very low risk in the control group. And we found that there was a marked difference, particularly in seven areas of the genome. This kind of study was only possible thanks to recent advances in DNA analysis. Another of the study's authors, Professor Doug Easton, explains more. In the period since the the human genome became sequenced, we've been able to identify many millions of genetic changes, perhaps about 10 million that are now known. But at the same time, we've also managed to develop a particular technology based on arrays of these variants or SNPs, which enable very large numbers of them to be tested simultaneously. And also the costs have come down a lot. So it's now possible to test many hundreds of thousands of SNPs on many thousands of people. And that's really made the search for these more common genetic variants possible when it wasn't possible before. But what does this all mean for the 30,000 men who are diagnosed with prostate cancer every year in the UK? Well, right now, 
Probably not a lot, but the hope is that in the future these new genes may lead to better screening tests and even more effective targeted treatments. Thank you very much. That's our own Kat Arney, who is from Cancer Research UK in her spare time, I should say. Uh, and she's been reporting there on the discovery of that clutch of new genes, which might lead to better insights into what causes prostate cancer, which actually kills a very large number of people in the UK every single year, but doesn't seem to have received perhaps the attention it could have done. Well, anyway, sticking with the biomedical theme, uh, we're now going to be joined by Professor Max Donnellan. He's a researcher at Simon Fraser University in Canada, and he's found a way to turn people into the human equivalent of a hybrid car. So, Max, tell us a little bit more. How does this work? Well, what we've done is take advantage of the inherent uneconomical nature of walking. And so, as you mentioned, you can take advantage of walking like a hybrid car takes advantage of stop-and-go driving. That is, within the walking stride, the muscles are first accelerating and then decelerating the body. And hybrid car takes advantage of that, of the decelerating, the braking, by using a generator to brake rather than a traditional brake, which just dissipates this heat. The generator produces electricity, which it can then use in a productive way. Well, we've done a similar thing for walking, where we've uh, tried to use a generator to help the legs, help the muscles slow the legs down. And in doing so, the generator can also, so it can assist the muscles, but then also produce electricity at the same time. It sounds a bit counterintuitive to think that your legs would be so inefficient that they need help in slowing down and that you can actually get useful energy out of this. Uh, Yeah, I I guess it is a a little unintuitive. But um, the main point, if you think about walking at a constant speed on the level, then there's no net change in your mechanical energy. So you're not, on average, you're not moving any faster or any slower, and you're not going uphill or going downhill. So that means... For every little bit of energy that your muscles put in, something also has to take it away. And it's, it's mostly your muscles that take it away. But you don't need them to do it. You can use something like a generator instead, and the generator can, can take the, the mechanical energy away from the body and put it through the generator and produce electricity at the same time. So in other words, as your leg's swinging to, to return to the starting position so you can take the next step, you would normally need a muscle to kick in and stop the leg from moving at that point. So your generator... Uh, exploits that effect and, and instead of the muscle doing that work you're diverting that effort through your generator and it recovers the energy that the body would otherwise have to expend that's that's exactly right so um where we do it is at the knee and towards the end of the swing phase so when you're moving your foot forwards to, to begin another step your hamstring muscles which are the muscles that run down the back of your leg they turn on to to slow down your knee extension and so our device mounted at the knee that generator engages at that period and helps those hamstring muscles in slowing down, slowing down the extension of the knee. And we can measure the fact that when we use the generator, it actually allows those muscles to turn down by about 15%, so their muscle activity decreases. And the difference in the energy expenditure is what you're generating with, with your device? Well, the, the, the idea is that the people actually don't have a difference in energy expenditure, that it's about um, you know, generating electricity relative to not generating it. It's about the same effort that they put out, but you still get the electricity out. And so you're getting five watts of electricity without increasing their effort by a meaningful amount. So what does this look like, this device, when it's actually in situ on a person? Is, is it very ungainly? Is it going to get in the way? Uh, in, in the current uh, version, I would say it is a bit ungainly. So it's, it looks like a, a normal orthopedic knee brace with a, a chassis mounted to the side of it. And uh, it, it's a bit bulky and a bit big, but that's... Um, because it's really designed for convenient experimentation so we can pull gears out and generators out and so on. The final version will be uh, less than a kilogram and be easily fit underneath a pair of pants. Uh, so uh, currently too big, but no problem getting it smaller. And, and when someone's wearing this thing, how much energy physically are they able to produce with it? 
Well, there's two modes. One mode, they can get 5 watts of electricity. And so for context, 5 watts is uh, enough to charge 10 felt, uh, mobile phones at the same time or to produce 10 minutes of talk time for, for one minute of walking. Uh, that's not to say I think we're going to charge mobile phones in the near future, but that gives you some context for how much power. But not being flippant or anything, Max, um, if I want to charge my mobile phone, I plug it in. So why would I want this? Well, I think you're, I think you're absolutely right that the people, for us, you know, uh, plugging in our mobile phone is just a matter of convenience. But for many people, their lives depend upon portable power. So consider, for example, if you had a powered prosthetic leg or a power device that helped you walk after stroke, uh, for you, it's, it's, not a, it's not always as simple as plugging it in because, for example, some of these prosthetic legs might run out of power within four hours or so. So if you can use your healthy leg to generate some electricity to power your, your, um, your artificial leg, then you can walk further and longer and farther and so on. I was wondering whether you could turn, put it into a mode so when you're walking down a hill, like down a big mountain, you can make it absorb lots and lots of energy because I find that very, very uncomfortable when walking out in mountains. That's a great question. So you're, you've hit on it exactly that walking downhill, um, there's a lot more energy available because you, essentially what your muscles are doing is making sure that you don't arrive at the bottom at the speed that gravity wants you to. And so they're, doing, they're, they're, they're taking the potential energy you had at the top of the hill and, and your muscles are dissipating it all as heat so that you, you, you walk down in a controlled way. So if you can use a generator to do that instead, you could produce lots and lots of electricity. And, uh, and we find that, indeed, that if you walk downhill, we can, we can get more electricity, or if you walk faster. Thank you very much, Max. My pleasure. That's Max Donnellan. He is a researcher at Simon Fraser University in Canada. They've invented a knee-mounted generating system, which can, as far as we know, power up to 10 mobile phones at once, which sounds very useful. Dave? Now I think we've got Martin on the phone. Hi, Martin. Yeah, hi, Dave. What's your question, Martin? Um, my question is, is that I was always told that water and electricity don't mix. After a second of stupidity, I'm not sure this is entirely true, uh, I put a nail through my central heating pipe and the vast quantity of water then began to drop into the ceiling space and then went through the light fitting. Now, the light fitting is not a standard rose. It's got a kind of like a one-inch deep bowl where the wires are connected between the mains and the halogen bulbs. Now, the light was on at the time, stayed lit for well over 10 minutes until a friendly plumber, you know, arrived on site and almost had a heart attack, realising the electricity was still switched on. Question being, why didn't the house short out? Why didn't the light go out? It's a good question, Martin. So Martin's ceiling rose, his electrical ceiling rose, almost became a shower rose, Dave, but why didn't it go bang? Exactly. Um, do you have a trip switch in your house? We do have fuses, yeah. Uh, not so, fuses are just things which um, will break if you draw too much current. If you've got one of the trip switches, which uh, it's called residual current devices, which will trip if any current's going to earth? No. Okay, um, if you haven't got a trip switch, the only thing which is going to cause the electricity to, tri- to, um, pop, to turn off is if you're drawing more current than one of the fuses can take. So that would involve more than sort of probably at least 40 or 50 amps of current. So as long as there's less current going through the water than 40 or 50 amps, then your house just thinks it's just someone's plugged in a whole lot of lights or maybe a heater in your heat, um, ceiling rays. The, if you did have a trip switch and the water was connected to something earthed, like a water pipe or, I mean, your central heating system ought to be earthed, then the trip switch would detect that there was some current running from the mains to the earth, down the earth wire. And they would think, oh no, something's gone wrong, the central heating system's exploded, we'll turn the power off now. <laughs> 
So without a trip switch, there's no reason why your power shouldn't carry on. And these, these lights are definitely not 12 volts, aren't they? Uh, I've not got a clue. Because one of the other fancy things that people tend to do in kitchens, for example, and other bits of the house, is that they have a 12-volt system mm. um, running those little mini halogen lights. They're very, very bright because all they do is draw a much bigger current, but at a lower voltage. But because water isn't a terrifically good conductor, like Dave's saying, um, then at 12 volts, it often won't actually make that much difference because there's not a big enough potential difference to, to flow much current through the water. So if it's 12 volts, that may have also been why it didn't actually go bang. You'll have to find out, Martin, and get back to us. Yeah, I will. I will. Well, thank you for joining us on The Naked Scientist. Excellent. Thanks very much indeed. It's a pleasure. Thanks. It's The Naked Scientist with Chris, Vic and Dave, and it's our science Q&A week. On the way, we'll be finding out why 3D television is becoming a step closer to reality. That's with Mark Peplow from Chemistry World. He's on the way. If you'd like to join us on the programme and ask us any questions, email us chris at thenakedscientist.com. Laying the facts bare, The Naked Scientists. It's The Naked Scientist with Chris, Vic and Dave. Got an email here for you, Victoria. This is from Kevin. He's actually writing from New Jersey. And he says, I've been wondering this question forever. I can't find the answer anywhere. How do living things know how to evolve? So, for instance, let's take a seahorse. I don't know its name, but it looks like a piece of weed in the ocean. You know the one he's talking about, which looks like a frond of seaweed. How does the seahorse know to turn into that? Why does it change to look like that? How do they make themselves evolve into that piece of weed? What's going on? Well, Kevin, um, it's not really a question of the animal knowing what to evolve into, but it, this is a really beautiful example of, of evolution in action, um, mimicking the, the surroundings so that animals are, are well hidden and protected from predators. So um, a particular species of seahorse will find a good bit of seaweed to sort of hide amongst and gather food and a really nice place for it to live. And as the um, seahorses breed and as um, new generations of seahorses are born, small genetic mutations will change their appearance and change certain things about them and as the um, as their appearance changes you might get a mutation that makes them a slightly different color that's very similar to the seaweed for example and so then a seahorse that was very similar color to the surrounding seaweed would be better protected because it would be camouflaged better so hidden from predators and more of those color seahorses would survive and so it goes on until the all of the seahorses resemble exactly the uh, the habitat in which they live which is exactly why animals do have this amazing ability to camouflage themselves. So, yeah. and, and even some animals, for instance, camouflage themselves to even look like other animals that are poisonous. Yeah, exactly. So even there though is. they're not poisonous, because they look like an animal that is, they get, avo- they get ignored yeah, because other animals that eat the poisonous ones or, or don't. Exactly, and there are really good examples, especially in the deep sea and in the insect world of that. Thank you, Victoria. So I hope you're happy with that, Kevin. Right, Connie is on the line. Hello, Connie. Hello. Thank you for joining us on The Naked Scientist. What would you like to talk about? Well, I was interested to hear about ghrelin earlier on in the program. And what I wondered was, um, could it be used to help people who've got into a condition where they don't want to eat? I mean, provided they were willing to have the treatment. But um, couldn't it stimulate appetite? It's a very good suggestion, and I suspect the answer is yes. Um, researchers are eager to try to find ways to help people who have eating disorders mm-hmm. and increase their ability to take on board food. Um, I don't know if it's actually been trialled in the context, though, of people who have an eating disorder, but I think it's just healthy volunteers they've tried it on so far. But it's a very good point, and yes, you could make a case for doing that because people, in fact, are often surprised to learn that the 
class of psychiatric condition which is associated with the highest rate of suicide and death is not all the things like schizophrenia and, and bipolar disorder, manic depression, although they have a very high suicide rate, the rate of death is actually highest amongst people with eating disorders. And anorexia nervosa is, I believe, associated with more people dying than virtually any other condition. Um, and certainly in, in young people, it's a leading cause of death in most people who are affected. So anything that can be done to help them is a really big step forward. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Okay. Well, thank you for making that point. It's a very good one. Thank you. Great to have you on the programme. Thanks, Connie. Okay, thanks. Dave, here's a question for you. It's been sent in by Jim Cooper, and he's actually in Arkansas, and he says, in Arkansas it occasionally gets very cold, and I have to defrost the windshield to my truck before I drive to work in the morning. I wonder what speed I should set the fan on to defrost my windshield the fastest, because I've noticed that if I breathe on my hand with my mouth wide open, like... <sighs> My breath feels warm, but if I exhale through pursed lips, the same breath feels cold. So why is that? And what should I do with my fan to achieve my fastest defrosting? I think what's going on when you're blowing on your hands is you're blo- you tend to be blowing on them from relatively far away, especially if you're breath- blowing on them with pursed lips. Um, so if you breathe slowly, especially if you're close, then all the air which hits your hands is a nice warm air from your lungs. But if you're blowing on them with pursed lips... Well, partly it's getting you further away, so the air will cool down a bit more. And also, as you're further away, it can tend to catch cold air from surrounding it and drag that along with it. So you're not just blowing on your lips now with warm air. You've got a load of cold air mixed in. And also, the faster the air is moving, the more it will tend to evaporate. That fast-moving air will tend to evaporate moisture from your skin, which will cool you down as well. So I think if you're blowing with a big fan very close to your windscreen, which is the way it works, the higher the fan is, the more it will defrost your window. So the bigger the blow, the better. So size is important then, Dave. I wouldn't comment, Chris. Okay. Uh, got a quick one here for you, Vic. Um, this has been sent in by Josephine. She says, love your show. Um, today I cut myself with a pretty sharp knife. Presumably <laughs> it was pretty sharp. It managed to cut it. Um, after I sat down for a minute, I felt a pulsing pain in my thumb um, where I cut myself. And I know, it, uh, I know it, I felt that way before when I was hurt. So why do I feel the pain coming in waves? Why is it not constant? Well, you'll notice that the the waves um, are in time with the beating of your heart, so the the pulse. And what happens is that when you cut yourself, a lot of um, inflammatory chemicals are are sent to that part of your body as part of your immune response to prevent infection to that wound. Um, And some of those chemicals stimulate nerve endings, nerve endings that are um, sensory sensory receptors that are actually mechanical stimulators. So as your artery throbs in rhythm with the beat of your heart, that stimulates those sensitised nerve endings and you get this throbbing, beating pain. Thank you very much, Victoria. Um, Roy and Peterborough Dave would like to know a bit about your submersible thing that you talked about. And he says, can it be used without a pilot for a long period of time? For instance, unlike the vessel that was used to search for the wreck of the Titanic? Yeah, definitely. You couldn't have a person in it because the amount of energy you need to keep a person going, you need to keep them warm, you need to keep giving them lots of oxygen, um, would be far more than the amount of energy it could generate. So the idea is you have little tiny computer-controlled things which can just travel through the, the ocean all over the place. In fact, the biggest limitation on it is the amount of power it can use because it can't generate very much, so you would have fairly not very power-hungry sensors. Thank you, Dave. It is The Naked Scientist with Chris, Dave and Vic. Coming up, we'll be finding out about 3D television and also how we are going to take absolutely years to repay the carbon debt to the world of all these fuels we're burning off. That's with Mark Peplow. He's coming up in a second. And if you'd like to ask us any questions about anything science, it's chris at thenakedscientist.com. And now for the last in our series of Rising Stars. These are young Cambridge University researchers who've been telling us all about their research and how it could affect the future of all of us. Uh, This week, we're going to be finding out how tiny wax beads could turn your house into a cathedral, or at least with regards to the temperature, which means sounds pretty chilly. Energy saving is big news. 
were asked to turn off computers and to ditch the car for buses and bikes. But did you know that a third of the world's energy is used in buildings, much of it on heating and air conditioning? It takes a lot of energy to keep you at a steady 20 degrees, come rain or shine. But there's plenty of heat and cold out there already. It just tends to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. In Cambridge, we're looking at ways that natural ventilation can help. Air in buildings expands when it's heated, and hot air rises, just like smoke from the tip of a cigarette. In a theatre, for example, the heat from the audience drives an airflow. In the lab, we can use simple water models to understand where the heat goes and ways to control it to keep everyone feeling comfy. Sometimes it can be as simple as opening a window to draw in cold air from the outside. Then automatic controls could slash energy use without you even noticing. Much of natural ventilation is borrowed from history. The Romans used to place underfloor furnaces in their baths, and air would rise through chimneys in the walls and out of the roof. Using this method, they could heat the baths up to 50 degrees. Natural heat flows also keep cathedrals cool in the height of summer. Heavy stone walls take far longer to heat up and cool down, and so chunky buildings can protect you from extreme temperatures, just as the sea protects coastal areas from extremes of summer and winter. Nowadays, though, builders often want to build frame buildings with paper-thin walls. So here we're experimenting with putting tiny wax capsules into walls to create a similar effect. Wax may not be as heavy as stone, but it can absorb a huge amount of energy when it melts. In fact, a couple of kilos of melting wax absorbs the same amount of energy as it takes to boil a kettle. By adding wax, we hope to turn your house into a cathedral. While these methods show promise, understanding airflows can be complicated, and sometimes we're all tempted to just fire up the aircon and forget the cost. Increasingly, though, natural ventilation will have a vital role to play in maintaining the climate outside our buildings, as well as comfort within. Thank you very much. That was Matthew Richardson, who was explaining how melting wax in your walls could actually help us to prevent the melting of wax at ice, rather, at the poles. So thank you very much to him. He was the last in our series of Rising Stars, young researchers at Cambridge University. Well, this is The Naked Scientist with Chris, Dave and Vic. In a second, Mark Peplow has just joined us. He'll be talking about ways in which we can actually read genetic code in future just by looking at it. And also we'll be finding out all about the attempt by Microsoft to buy up Yahoo. That's all coming, but we've got other questions in store. And if you'd like to put your question in the pile, email chris at thenakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientist Podcast, brought to you by thenakedscientist.com. And now on The Naked Scientist, time to catch up as we do once a month with the editor of Chemistry World from the Royal Society of Chemistry. That's Mark Peplow. Hello, Mark. Hello, Chris. Thank you for joining us. So tell us, 3D television sounds fantastic, especially on the radio. It does sound fantastic, doesn't it? It's not quite around the corner, but the first major step, really, has been taken towards it. Um, we're all used to this idea of, of being able to have a hologram where you effectively get this image which gives you the illusion of three dimensions. You can look around this object. Uh, a group of scientists from the University of Arizona um, have now managed to make that hologram and then found a way to erase and rewrite it with a new image. So in theory, if you can do that frequently enough, you can actually get a moving three-dimensional film. Now, the way that they they do this uh, relies on a special type of polymer. Um, What happens is when you're taking a a holographic image, laser beams uh, bounce off this uh, uh, object from different angles, and where they bounce back and recombine, uh, they hit this light-sensitive polymer and it stores the 3D signal in a complex pattern of interference. Now, they've tweaked the polymer that they use with a special dye molecule and found that um, as long as they put an electric field across it, it means that the dye molecules are 
shifted, rotated, if you like, uh, when the laser light hits them. Uh, that means that it takes them about three minutes to draw a full image, and then another blast of laser light effectively resets the dye molecules, ready for the next image to be written. The three minutes, that's not a very fast frame rate, I know, if I'm Chris, honest. I know, uh, uh, I guess the crucial thing about this is that it's a proof of principle that it can be done at all. We, we talked to a, uh, a hologram chemistry expert called Colin Davidson, who's at the University of Cambridge here, um, and he pointed out that there's a lot of work gone on in this area, but nobody's really demonstrated this ability uh, to do this so reliably and at least repeat time after time again. So it's going to be a little while before we can have a game of, of chess like they do on Star Wars with those kind of figures that really acted out on the board for us. Yeah, absolutely. Although that would be so cool, wouldn't I, it? I can't wait for those days, actually. Now, what's this about biofuels and, and carbon debts and things? Yeah, um, uh, biofuels are beginning a, a rough ride lately. Uh, the Royal Society, which is uh, uh, Britain's uh, major academy of sciences, um, has uh, put out some major warnings recently uh, about people... Uh, policymakers rushing too quickly to adopt uh, new biofuel policies. The idea is that rather than burning uh, petrol, which we get from oil out of the ground, wouldn't it be better to get our fuel for the car from plants? Plants grow by sucking up carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and we're trying to reduce the amount of carbon dioxide we're putting out uh, to reduce the rate of global warming. That's good, isn't it? You want plants to take CO2 out of the atmosphere and turn them into stuff you turn into fuel so there's no net carbon gain. So why should there be a problem with that? Absolutely. Well, uh, um, the, the, the devil is in the detail, as with all of these things. And um, as people have started to grow more and more biofuels, a good example is sugarcane uh, in Brazil, uh, where they turn that into, into fuel for cars, ethanol fuel for cars. Um, people are doing what's called a life cycle analysis. They basically look at all of the energy that you need to put in to make these fuels and also look at all of the carbon that comes out when you're making these fuels. And the latest pair of studies, which was just published in Science magazine on Friday, really paint a very damning picture. Um, effectively they say that when you cultivate land to grow pretty much any kind of biofuel, you rack up this carbon debt. Um, you're releasing so much carbon tra that was trapped in the soil um, that it can take sometimes centuries to uh, regain, repay that carbon debt by, uh, through the advantages of using biofuels. So I, su I suppose the, the moral of this story is there's no quick fix, is there? Absolutely. I mean, it's interesting because people uh, often talk about the, the Brazilian uh, situation using sugarcane as probably the best uh, biofuel to use. They found that it still took 17 years to repay the carbon released when, for example, a, a random tract of savanna was ploughed up to actually plant that stuff. So there's lots and lots of things to consider rather than just the here and now. Absolutely. And what's this about um, reading the genetic code directly? Because this sounds amazing. Yeah, they, I mean, this sounds re like really Star Trek stuff, and it's really exciting, actually. Um, we're all used to this idea of, of DNA fingerprinting. Um, this relies on a, a chemical reaction called the polymerase chain reaction. What that means is you, out of this smear of blood that you find in CSI, um, there will be millions and millions of molecules of DNA in there, but still not enough to get a reliable read on uh, the... Uh, exact chemical data that's uh, recorded in that DNA. So you have to do this reaction that amplifies the DNA sample by multiplying the number of molecules over and over and again in the sample until you've got enough to do a proper analysis. Now that takes a laboratory, takes time, and it can introduce errors. Um, a, a group now in Dortmund in Germany um, have found a way, they've proved the principle that they can read a single molecule of, not DNA, but its chemical cousin RNA, um, using a, a device which is a special combination basically um, of two different techniques uh, what it looks like really is a tiny tiny record player needle um, where the tip of it is just 20 nanometers across and it's hooked up to a laser 
what happens is that the tip reads along the length of a single molecule of RNA and it guides the laser as it goes. Now, that laser um, will uh, illuminate that particular section of the molecule and the light that comes back carries the characteristic signature of the chemical bases, as they're called, which holds the data in RNA. And they've proved that although the, the laser blast will illuminate maybe half a dozen bases at once, because the tip moves along it one base at a time, they can literally read along and show that uh, as they move this tip along, they can pick up each base as it, as it comes along. Now, at the moment, this requires some big bits of kit, and it's pretty time-consuming, but again, it shows that you can, you can read this single molecule of genetic code, um, and uh, uh, because of the advances that have come along in, in these sorts of techniques, um, it means that over the coming years, this should get faster cheaper and easier thank you mark it's amazing to think that um how far we've come because you say it's cheap it's big and bulky but then so is the polymerase chain reaction when we first started but thank you very much for coming here mark that's mark peplo he is the editor of chemistry world from the royal society of chemistry Vic. And it's time now to join Mira with Chris Valance for our regular technology update. And if you're one of the millions of people who download pirated musical movies, you may want to listen carefully to this one. I've met up with our resident tech expert, Chris Valance, in London to find out what's going on in the world of technology this month. Hey, Chris. Hi there. So there's been news with Pirate Bay. What's that? Well, Pirate Bay kind of does what it says on the tin. Pirate Bay is a Swedish-based website and it claims to be the world's largest BitTorrent tracker. Now, BitTorrent is a place where people share files. It's a file-sharing system, and the kind of things that people share on BitTorrent, lots of legitimate things, but also copyright content, the kind of thing like films, books, music, also gets shared. Obviously, this is very controversial. The people who own the copyright don't like this kind of thing, the music industry, the film industry. Way back in May of 2006, BitTorrent was raided. About 200 police raided its offices in Sweden. We didn't have any charges, but last week four people associated with Pirate Bay were charged. Now, it's, it's a very, very political issue, not just on the web, but in Sweden as well. Pirate Bay didn't actually host any of this content. On their servers, you wouldn't have found films, music, whatever. They were just linking to this peer-to-peer -peer sharing system. They claim they're not doing anything wrong as a result, don't they? Yeah, exactly. So if you talk to people who support Pirate Bay and support their position, they say, look, we're just linking. In a way, what we're doing isn't any different from what a search engine would do. In fact, I spoke to Magnus Ericsson. Now, Magnus Ericsson is a spokesperson for Pirat Biren, which I think translates as the Pirate Bureau. And he explained that, in his view, what Pirate Bay was doing wasn't that different from what search engines and forums and other websites do. The prosecutor doesn't really have much to offer here. What he's trying to imply is that the Pirate Bay, just by starting this service, is responsible for what its users does on it, that they are somehow aiding them in their uh, copyright infringement. But if this would be a principle, that would mean that anyone developing a community site or a forum site or a mail client or something would have to be responsible for what its users does. I mean, it's an open service, and the, the consequences is that people share the things that matter to them, and it seems like that's at the moment is copyrighted material. Sarah Lindback is a legal specialist with the anti-Pirat Mirror. She takes a very different view. The material from the prosecutors shows, for instance, that they had a yearly turnover of three million US dollars. And Pirate Bay has been making it possible for millions of people to illegally file share material. They are making a lot of money on the rights holders' material. Now, for the film and recording industry, what really marks Pirate Bay out is the fact that they were making a lot of money. This is Joe Oliver, 
a legal analyst with the IFPI, a body that represents the recording industry. Pirate Bay has become something of a destination for those who are looking for illegal content, and the scale is quite staggering. Pirate Bay claims to have 10 million users worldwide, so the steps being taken today to file charges are very important to us. They would say they're merely linking to torrents that are already there. They don't create those torrents. As a user, you go along to the Pirate Bay and it provides everything you need to get the infringing material. Around the world, similar types of services have made the same argument, but in the end, the courts found that they were liable for what they were doing. I think the difference is uh, the Pirate Bay is set up to exploit illegal content, so it's a lot easier to find pirate material on Pirate Bay than it is doing a Google search online. So in a way, I think what you see emerging is a question about degree. For the prosecutors, what Pirate Bay was doing was so obviously about getting copies of films, in their view, for the people who support Pirate Biran, what they're doing isn't so different from what search engines enable you to do. There's definitely a bit of a legal clampdown on people who are sharing and uh, engaging in the kind of activity that Pirate Bay was engaging in. Well, it'll be really interesting to see how that turns out. Is there anything else going on in the world of tech at the moment? Well, I don't think we could get away without mentioning Microsoft and Yahoo. It's a $23 billion offer Microsoft has made for Yahoo. It's interesting because obviously Microsoft... Their main competitor, they see, is Google. But Google and Microsoft are very different business models. Google sees our sort of tech future, if you like, as being very much based on the web, whereas for Microsoft as a software maker, it's still very much focused around the PC. So, you know, you have Microsoft producing Office software that will let you do spreadsheets and word processing on your PC. Google producing Google Docs and Google Spreadsheets let you do it on the web. So two very different philosophies. But if you look at Microsoft's move for Yahoo, well, is this Microsoft trying to sort of get into Google's territory and sort of compete on there? Not just competing on search, because obviously Google dominates the search market, but it's more really about the direction of our future computer use. And I think what's interesting about Yahoo, they own some very interesting properties. They own Flickr, Delicious, they own Upcoming, they're heavily involved in OpenID... Also what's interesting is the reaction from the community of users because you have Flickr groups now saying, we don't want Microsoft owning Flickr, wondering how that's going to go if Yahoo suddenly becomes owned by a software producer. And of course, in all of this, you've got Google who are now trying to sort of snuggle up to Yahoo in an effort to sort of put off that Microsoft bid. And above all of that, you've got the competition regulators and how are they going to view a very big merger between two very big companies involved in the internet computing space. There's a lot still to play out with this. Thanks, Chris. Microsoft hasn't yet made moves to buy the thenakedscientist.com, but I think $23 billion <laughs> would be very tempting indeed. It's certainly what I wouldn't say, no. Diana, do you Google or do you Yahoo? Uh, I've always been a Google <laughs> girl at heart. This is Diana O'Carroll, who's joined us actually in the studio for this week's Question of the Week. Right, well, this week we've got a bit of a slippery one. Hi, this is Robin. I'm calling from California in the USA. Uh, I had a question about electric eels. I was wondering how... Do they themselves do not get hurt by the electric shocks that they use to communicate or stun prey? And since they're in water, how far does the current carry? So, can an eel generate 500 volts without cooking itself? Well, here's the answer. I'm Dr. Mark Briffer, and I'm a lecturer in marine biology at the University of Plymouth. First of all, an electric eel isn't really an eel. It's a member of a family of fish called gymnotids, or knife fish, and the scientific name is rather aptly Electrophorus electricus. In most animals, electric currents are used in nerves to carry information and to control muscle movements. And what makes fish like electric eels special 
is that they can exploit this property of muscle tissue and discharge bursts of electric current into the surrounding water. And they do this using an electric organ made out of modified muscle tissue in the tail. If electric eels can generate these strong discharges, what stops them from electrocuting themselves? Well, first of all, the electric organs are in the flanks of their tail, and this means that the discharge occurs closer to the water than to the eel's internal organs. And since water is more conductive than body tissue, the charge travels away from the eel. There's a second possibility, and that's that because the discharge is very quick, the current doesn't flow for long enough to shock an animal as large as an electric eel. But for its prey, which are usually smaller fish, the short burst is enough to shock and stun or sometimes even kill them. So electric eels are unlikely to cause a damaging electric shock to humans, but it's still not going to be a very pleasant experience to be on the receiving end of one. And an impressive two-meter-long pet electric eel probably isn't a very good idea. It's quite difficult to work out how far the discharge will, will travel, but prey being stunned or killed up to a distance of two meters away from the eel have been reported. So the important bits of the eel are located as far away from the electric organ as possible. Dr Carl Hopkins from Cornell University also told us that the eel's vital organs are surrounded by a fatty layer, which acts as an insulator. We've also had a comment on the forum by Sophie Centaur on how engineers get around a similar problem in radars. They put in diodes, which are one-way valves for electricity, which will stop that big shock coming back from the radar into the sensitive electronics. But I've never heard of a diode in a um, fish, so it's probably not how eels do it. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, quite a novel way of looking at it, I think. Um, anyway, back to the more human method of communication, writing. Hi, this is Thomas from Uttlesford, and I'm a science teacher. This is my question. What is the smell of old books? The older the book, the better it smells. I'm not talking about the old mouldy smell of an ill-kept book. I'm talking about the heartwarming smell of a book you've loved and kept for 20 years. So what is the smell of old books? And after that one, we'll be looking at other sources of smelliness. Hi, I'm John Montserrat from Cambridge, Mass. in the USA. And when I hear music, I have a perception in my brain about how noisy it is. Uh, loud things always feel loud to me, and quiet things always seem quiet, of course. It doesn't matter whether it's a high note or a low note or a trumpet or a piano, my sense of how big the noise is is always accurate. So my question is, how accurate is my sense of bigness for smell? Well, I sense a very strong smell like rotten food. Does that mean there's a lot of this odor in the air? Or can my nose play tricks on me by being super sensitive to some smells that are actually tiny? So if you know what makes a book smell so good, or why one is more intense than the other, get in touch by emailing questionoftheweek at thenakedscientist.com or put your ideas in our forum. That's thenakedscientist.com forward slash forum. Were you into scratch and sniff, Diane? Uh, it wasn't really Because I thing. had a scratch and sniff sticker book. <laughs> Did you have one of those? No, I used to have uh, scented pencils, though. That's, that's quite good. But I guess that's it? not what he's asking. <laughs> Diana O'Carroll, thank you very All much right, for joining us for this week's Question of the Week. Sorting out the sparks from the quarks. The Naked Scientists. For more information, get online at nakedscientists.com. 
And this is The Naked Scientist with Chris, Dave and Vic this evening. And it's time for a bit of kitchen science, as we always do. So, Dave, what are you do? you've got a bucket of water in a radio studio. Does health and safety know about this? Because they banned Pancake Day this week. And, you know, I don't know what they'd have to say about that. Let, let's not discuss it too deeply with them, shall we, Chris? <laughs> so what are you going to do? OK, this week's kitchen science was ridiculously simple. All you need is a can of a diet drink and a can of a sugary drink and just put them in the water and see what happens. This might be useful if you're travelling abroad and you can't, and, you're, and they've got the writing in sort of Cyrillic or something and you can't read it and you can't tell which is which. So this is, a way to, this is a useful way that you might be able to find out. So first of all, we're going to take the diet drink and put it in the water. Oh, that's good, it's floating. Yeah, it's, yeah the tin is just floating out the floating. surface. Yeah. But if we take the sugary drink and put it in... And that sinks straight to the bottom. Oh, no, it's popped back up again. Oh, just about... Uh, no, just, no, it's, it's, it's lower sunk. in the water. It is, it's much lower in the water. And so it's, it's at the bottom again. It's sunk all the way down. OK, so why should... They taste pretty much the same. Some people would beg to differ, but why should that happen? It's to do with what's in them. It is actually to do with the sugar in them because a sugary drink has... A can of Coke has got about 40 grams of sugar in it. It's a good 30, 30, 40 grams of sugar in it. That's a lot, isn't it? A six, good six or seven teaspoonfuls, that must it's be. It's an awful lot. It's, it's a scary amount of sugar. Um, and sugar is more dense than water. So if you mix sugar and water, the resulting mixture is going to be more dense than normal water. So you can get more weight in the same space. So I've got a set of scales here. You're actually going to weigh a tin of... So we can diet and a tin of full fat. Yep. Fizzy. So first of all, we weigh the diet coke, which is at about three hundred and forty-eight grams. Okay. I'll just dry off the full fat, full sugar coke, and that is about three hundred and sixty-two grams. So that extra twelve grams is because the same amount of liquid now contains a lot more molecules because you've got the sugar molecules are fitting into the space between the water molecules i presume yeah i mean there's another second effect which is there's lots of space in water which is part of the reason why it expands when it freezes and so the water the sugar molecules will fit in between and also just that sugar is more dense than water so you mix two together you get something more dense than water but when you do dissolve salts and sugars in water the volume does go up a bit doesn't it it, do, it, it does go up. Um, in fact, I was trying to do this experiment last night, and it, oh. like, it goes up quite a lot. Uh, I can. It, it, I think it goes up. The, the, the combination, the solution, is slightly less volume. Than so, does that mean if you two. drink the one which is kind of got the the full fat variety, lots of sugar in it, you're actually getting better value for money because they must have stuffed more in to to get that. I mean, there's more, there's certainly more stuff in there, and the and sugar is a lot more expensive <laughs> than water. So, it is in some ways it's better value for money, unless you consider that slimming is more important than the sugar. So, the practical aspect of this, apart from to teach you about um, density and why things float and why things sink, is if you're in a foreign country and you can't read which can of drink is the diet variety and you want to stick to your diet, then this is the way to, to find out. But, I mean, talking seriously for a minute, that's how, if you go to a posh cocktail bar, they'll make a really fancy cocktail which is layered, like a tequila sunrise, because of the density difference. Yeah, very sugary drinks, and sugar in al- mixed with alcohol will actually make it slightly more dense as well. So very sugary drinks will tend to sink down to the bottom and just pure water will sink, stay up at the top. And if you apply this to the real world in terms of how water moves around the planet and the Gulf Stream and all that kind of thing the same thing applies with salinity up in the Arctic doesn't it? Yeah that's right, when um, up in the Arctic when lots of ice forms ice is basically pure water so the water, the seawater which is left over gets more salty. I'm getting slightly worried with this bucket of water on my knees and waving my arms about Half as worried as us <laughs> because Petro told me that they, they couldn't make the tap work so they had to wee in the bucket. Um, would that have affected the, um, it the density? Affected the, it would in fact increase the density of the water so, so the cans would be that more might be, yeah, it would 
have sunk better if um, if it had been pure it water. It would float better. It yeah. would better. The other one would have sunk better. It doesn't smell of weeds, <laughs> I'm, I'm hoping. But yeah, um, with the oceans, when ice forms at the um, North Pole, that takes a lot of water out of the water out of the seawater without taking the salt out. The seawater gets denser, so this will tend to sink. So it sinks down the Atlantic. Something's got to take its space its place so warm water from the gulf of mexico tends to come up north which hits us which is the gulf stream which keeps us warm in the winter thank you very much dave you can put your bucket down now gently please we had a call from rachel in cambridge because she was interested in the point we were making i think because connie phoned in to say about how these various drugs could be used to stimulate appetite and, and rachel wanted to point out that in eating disorders appetite isn't the isn't the, the driving um, force behind them. In fact, a, a drug that stimulates appetite might therefore not help because the problem is not wanting to it. Not so much not wanting to eat, but allowing yourself, physically allowing yourself to eat. So that's a very good point. And thank you very much for making that, uh, Rachel. Um, also, Dave, got a question here, which I, I absolutely adore this question. This has been sent in by Jay DeSalvo, and he says, why do certain parts of the world, such as the Gulf of Mexico, have only two tides a day, one high and one low, when other bits of the world have four tides a day, two high tides and two low tides? Okay, first of all, why do we, most of the world, 99% of the world just has two tides a day? And the reason for that is um, both the moon and the sun pull, pull on the earth um, and on the water around it. And if you're close to something massive but due to gravity, and if you're close to something massive, it's got a stronger attract, attraction due to gravity than something further away. So the water on the side of the earth close to the, closest to the moon is going to get pulled hardest. Um, then the earth, which is sort of in the middle, is going to get pulled slightly less hard. And the water on the far side is going to get pulled even less hard. So you get, tend to get two bulges of water, one the bulge of water closest to the moon and the other bulge of water on the other side, which is getting left behind. So there's a reason why most places get two tides a day. But some places, the only place I know about it is Southampton um, and around Portsmouth in the UK, which has got the Isle of Wight. And this, if you look very closely at a map of the Isle of Wight, it looks like there's two funnels, one on each side of the Isle of Wight, just north of it. And as the water rushes up the channel, as the tide rushes up the channel, it sort of piles into these funnels. And then it kind of gets, as it gets narrower and narrower, the wave gets higher and higher. So you actually get a high tide as the water rushes up. You get another one on the other funnel as the, t- as the water rushes back down the channel. So you get twice as many tides as you should have and you get four tides a day. I have a question from uh, Jason in Canada who's worried about his brain cells dying. You might be able to help him out with this, Chris. Um, He says that sometimes when he stands up or exerts himself, he sees little white lights or firework displays in his vision. What is that? That's because when you stand up, Victoria, all of the blood which is circulating around your body suddenly has this big force of gravity pushing it straight down into your legs. So the amount of blood coming back up from your legs into your heart to be pumped out into your brain drops. Your retina part of the eye that converts light into signals the brain can understand has the highest metabolic rate of any tissue in the body so if the blood flow to the retina drops very very slightly for a fraction of a second it starts to fire off abnormal signals and those are the white lights that you see so that should set his mind at ease it should do hopefully right well that's it for this week thank you very much to everyone who joined in and also thank you very much to the contributors this week max donnellan mark peplow diana o'carroll chris valance and also our wonderful production team petra minch ben valsler and mira senthlingham next week we're going to boston that's in the u.s for the AAAS, and we'll also be finding out all about the science of transplantation so join us next time if you can the naked scientists are sponsored by the wellcome trust the epsrc and uk fast for more information Look us up online at nakedscientists.com.